I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains sensitive topics and discussions. Listener discretion is advised. The Woman of Seven Faces was on the run for nearly 15 years. But with the clock running out, would police be able to catch her in time? This is the Kazuko Fukuda story. Megan, we are one month closer to your sabbatical. I know, I know. I'm on sabbatical in (laughs) one year. Less than one year. Yeah, less than a year, actually. That's true. I just have to figure out what my project's going to be for sabbatical. So I think last time I worked on a couple articles, but this time I'm thinking about, it sounds crazy, but another book. I was going to say another podcast series, but okay, I support the book. Well, I'm definitely working on a podcast series, but also I think I've told you this before. I don't know that they would support it for sabbatical, but I would love to write a crime fiction book. I already have like a story set out and I already started writing it a little bit, but I need time. So who knows? Maybe I'll get an opportunity to do that for my sabbatical, something a little different. That sounds great. I'll be one year behind you. I know. Yay. Too bad we can't do it at the same time. That would be fun. Yeah, but then two thirds of our department would be gone. So... (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, today's episode is one I have been working on for a pretty long time. So as you know, and probably some of our listeners have heard, I was in Japan this past summer. And so I was in Japan in May, right? So it's been taking me, what, almost four months for me to finish this episode. I mean, in fairness, it didn't really take you that long and you had a lot of stuff to do when you got back. So yes, but I will tell you while I was in Japan, I immediately started doing research on the Japanese criminal justice system because I was like, well, I'm here. I might as well learn about the system and then at the same time get a little bit of work done. So I started researching different cases and I came across this case. And 
while the case itself is interesting, what drew me to it was actually the law surrounding the case because it's very different than the law we have in our country. And you'll find out soon what I'm referring to. I like when we do comparative pieces. I mean, we've only taught that one comparative justice course, but that was great when we did that in England. So I'd love to do it with other countries. And I'm glad you chose this case. Good. Let's go to Costa Rica and do it. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> you know how bad I want to go to Costa Rica. Let's just figure out a way to get there. Definitely. Okay. So I'm assuming, Megan, you have not heard of the story of the woman of seven faces because I had never heard of it. I have not. Well, spoiler alert, she did not actually have seven faces. But as we'll discuss, she did change her appearance quite a few times. Now, let's understand what led to this change in appearance. So let's meet Japanese native Kazuko Fukuda. Kazuko was born in 1948 in the Japanese city of Matsuyama. I don't know much about her early life, aside from the fact that her parents got divorced when she was very young. Kazuko's dad wasn't part of her life, and her mother was left to support the child on her own. And regardless of what country you reside in, of course, this would be incredibly difficult for a single mother, especially in the 1950s in Japan, where we're talking about. Oh, yeah. Kazuko's mother worked very hard to provide for her daughter, but she was not always able to do so in legal ways. You see, for a time, Kazuko's mother ran a brothel out of their home. Mm. And while it was legal in the early 50s, by 1956, Japan passed the Prostitution Prevention Law to lock down on sex work. Now, this is also known as the Anti-Prostitution Law, and it was a response to the uptick in prostitution following World War II. The law stated that, quote, no person may either do prostitution or become the customer of it. But there were loopholes and variations and interpretations of the law. Right. And also at times there was a loose enforcement of the law. So as we see sometimes, you know, enforcement will just turn a blind eye to certain things. It's more the loophole I want to focus on for a minute because Japanese law defines prostitution as, quote, intercourse with an unspecified person in exchange for payment. The many of the services offered are services such as flirty conversation, dancing or bathing. Now, these services are sometimes accompanied by sexual acts, but they're legally not defined as intercourse. And this is to remain in compliance with the law. Now, I'm not sure if Kazuko's mother used these loopholes to maintain a legitimate business or if she was illegally operating under the radar. But regardless, Kazuko's home was used for some sort of sex work well after the prostitution prevention law had gone into effect. Megan, I have a couple of asides in this episode because Japanese culture is so fascinating but I promise I will get us back on track quickly. Now, there's a very interesting history of the sex trade and sex work in Japan, and this is dating back to the 15th century. But I can tell you the current sex industry has a variety of services and names. Now, many businesses related to prostitution voluntarily, despite there being no regulation requiring it, they ban entry to foreigners. And this is including tourists and people who cannot speak Japanese. Now, the reason I bring this up is I saw this firsthand as I was walking around in Japan. There were a lot of places that seemingly offered certain services or were, you know, adult clubs, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And they would say no tourists welcome. And there'd be, you know, signs that indicated it was only for people who lived in Japan. Okay. So I spoke to, I had a tour guide. So I asked my tour guide about this. And he said that recently there's been an uptick in tourism, specifically since covid Because COVID, obviously, tourism kind of shut everything down, and now tourism is back up. And there are now several businesses that have been set up specifically to cater to the foreigner market, but they're kept separate from the traditional clubs. Okay. Anyway, back to Kazuko. 
So essentially, she grew up watching the sex trade. And we don't know how this made her feel. Maybe she was okay with it. And hopefully she was not abused in any way. But she decided to leave the house at a pretty young age. And by the age of 18, she moved out and was living with her boyfriend. Now, this is going to seem like we quickly jump here. But that's because we do. Because the next thing I'm going to tell you is that in 1966, the two broke into the home of a well-known tax collector. Now, this man was the manager of a regional taxation bureau. How did the couple plan? How did they target this person? What do we know about him? So, you know what I mean? Like, how did this mm -hmm. crime come to fruition? So, Megan, as we'll see, this is not the crime that put her name in the news. And there is not much information on this particular event. So I'm not sure if the couple needed the cash. I'm not sure if they targeted this individual because they had a vendetta against him. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if this man she was dating had a prior history. I don't know any of that. But the reason why this is important to the story is because they got caught and Kasuko was sent to prison. She wasn't just sent to any prison. She was sent to Matsuyama Prison, which was notoriously corrupt and a very dangerous place to be in the 1960s. What makes this prison worse than the others? That's a good question because there is a very specific reason why this prison was considered so dangerous. So members of one of Japan's most powerful gangs, known as the Yakuza, in English, this word simply means gangster. Now, they essentially ran the prison. So they would pay off the guards in the prison so that they could drink, smoke, gamble, and sexually assault the female inmates whenever they wanted to. This was a co-ed prison. And while they were housed separately, women and men were on the same compound. But essentially, this gang would pay off guards to assault the women that were staying in the prison. Yeah, it's always problematic when you have males and females mixed in prisons. But here, that practice was kind of banned before the 1960s. Mm -hmm. I mean, for the most part, you know, but yeah. when you have a situation like that, as you're referencing in Japan, I could see that it would be problematic and, and dangerous for women. You're absolutely right. But the interesting thing about the Yakuza, I didn't know much about the Yakuza. So I did a little bit of research and I saw some places describe it as a mafia-like organization. But it's actually quite different because the Yakuza is socially and culturally accepted for the most part in Japan. Now, they keep a very low profile, but a lot of their activities are run under a legal entity. So they are considered almost semi-legitimate in Japan. And they sometimes will get involved in like disaster relief efforts and fundraisers. So they're a pretty interesting group. And they don't just consist of one group. There are many different syndicate groups that together they form one of the largest organized crime groups in the world. So the group, they're international and they are still regarded today as being among the most sophisticated and wealthiest criminal organizations. I am familiar with the Yakuza and I do know a little bit about them historically and, and factually. But as a side note, too, you've probably seen this in movies before. There have been movies with Japanese male gangsters, but they're wearing suits. But, you know, when they take the suits off and you see underneath they have tattoos, you pretty much know that's the Yakuza right there. But they're not supposed to show those tattoos. Yes. And I would love to understand this more. I find it so fascinating. And mm -hmm. I wish I had known about it before my trip because then I could have asked my guide or other, you know, Japanese natives that I spoke to. But I was wondering if we have any Japanese listeners. So this is my call to our listeners. I am curious if anyone found a sticker in Japan. If so, can you please write us and let me know? Because I have to be honest, Megan, I did not leave a lot because 
Japan is the cleanest country I've ever been to. You said. Yeah, I, I remember. I was like one of the main things yep. I told you. So I did not leave many stickers. It's not like New York City where people put stickers on every street light, throw our sticker up there next to the other hundreds of stickers. I would never stick it to anything. Yeah, that Very few places. Sometimes I would leave them on a table after I pay a bill or something like that. So I would love to know if anyone in Japan found my stickers. James told me we have almost 300 downloads last month just out of Japan. So, And I'm so curious to see if one of those people got your stickers, Amy. <laughs> me too. <laughs> that, that would, would be, be amazing. That okay. would be very interesting. <laughs> okay, so back to the Yakuza. So one of the Yakuza's victims was 18-year-old Kasuko, who was serving her time in the prison. Kasuka would spend about two years in this prison before being released at the age of 20. Soon after her release, Kazuko got married, but five years later, she got divorced and she married another man. The only thing I was able to find out about this man is that his name was Ikigami. Within only five years, however, she divorced him and married another man. And this man would become someone who would be pretty important to this story. Now, the couple would go on to have four children together. And despite Kazuko's difficult start, she and her family lived what seemed like a comfortable life. Many would say it was actually quite lavish. Kazuko liked nice things and she loved spending money. But this lifestyle would also lead to lots of debt, which would also lead to gambling and heavy drinking. Oh. So Kazuko's comfortable life was quickly slipping away. Do we know if it was comfortable because of, uh, like, was she doing anything? Was it her husband bringing in the money? Was it family? Do, we, do you know anything about their background and why their life was, you know, so lavish? It's funny you say that because the next thing I was about to talk about was Kazuko's work. I don't know what her husband did for work, but I get the impression that she didn't need to work. Okay. And he was doing well enough until her lifestyle demanded a little bit more money. So by 1982, when Kazuko was 34 years old, she started to work as a hostess at a cabaret in Matsuyama City. Mm -hmm. Now, a hostess isn't how we think of it in America. Oh. In America, a hostess stands in front of a restaurant and welcomes patrons and sometimes will take reservations and stuff like that, right? Do you know anything about the host or hostess jobs in Japan? Nothing at all. Okay, I didn't either. They're part of what's known as the nighttime entertainment business. Right. And the job of hostess or host nowadays is a very popular job. So at the time we're talking about, Kazuko became a hostess and basically her job was to cater to male customers. I'm talking light cigarettes, bring them food, bring them beverages. Their job was to also flirt with them, chat with them, drink with them, basically hang out with them, make them feel special. They would often sing karaoke. Interesting. And now this is not a strip club. It's not a gentleman's club. There's mm -hmm. absolutely no nudity or sex acts. In fact, touching and soliciting sex is strictly prohibited. So now that you mentioned it, Amy, you know, I said it hadn't heard of the host position, but I do remember James telling me about these practices being somewhat common because he used to have to travel for his work to Asia. And so I don't think that's very uncommon. And you're right. It is not a sexual job in nature. It is more literally like tending to someone's, you know, entertainment needs and making sure they're having a good time. But it's almost it's almost like having a personal waitress in some ways because they are they're waiting on people. Yes, but they are attractive and very well put together. And usually younger people are in these jobs. Right. So, yeah, there is an aesthetic part of it. Some people say that these hostesses are like modern geishas, but I don't believe that to be true because when I was in Japan, I learned quite a bit about geishas and they entertain, but it's based on tradition. They use artistic abilities and they have to train 
they have to become an apprentice mm -hmm. before they be can become an actual geisha. Right. Did you ever read Memoirs of a Geisha? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And actually, when I was in Japan, we were in Kyoto and we thought we saw a geisha. And our tour guide informed us that there are many geishas who pretend to be geishas, you know, to oh. get money from tourists. But in fact, he said there are only about a thousand actual real geishas in Japan. And they are mostly in Kyoto and Tokyo, but there's not many. Very interesting. And he also told us why they paint their faces white. I learned so much like fun history. No, I don't recall. They would paint their faces white to enhance their skin in candlelight oh. before there was electricity because you would be able to see their beautiful faces more the lighter mm. their face was. That makes sense. Okay. Yes. So going back to these hostess clubs, like everything else, of course, there are less innocuous versions of these clubs. And those exist in cities, mostly their red light districts. But that's not the kind of work at all that Kazuko was involved in. So she was involved in the legitimate hostess work. Mm -hmm. And this job made her pretty good money, but it would also lead to many late nights out of her home. And of course, lots of drinking. And not surprisingly, she would strike up a relationship with one of the male clients and would soon begin to have an extramarital affair. So she had these four children at home and a husband, but she was spending most of her nights out late partying and drinking and also spending a lot of time with her new boyfriend. Oh, I imagine this had to create some friction in the home. then. Yeah, I would think it would. And is this new relationship going to lead to a crime? You know what, Megan? No, it's not. A crime will happen, but I don't think it had much to do with this new relationship, but I guess that's for us to talk about in the discussion. Okay. Where things would take a turn was after a new woman named Astuko Yasuka was hired to work at this club. Now, this woman was beautiful. She was a couple of years younger than Kazuko, but she was always dressed in this beautiful, expensive clothes. She was extremely charming and had a very happy disposition. And as a result, she quickly became one of the most popular hostesses at the club. And Kazuko would become extremely jealous of her because this was the life Kazuko wanted. Remember, she loved lavish items. She mm -hmm. wanted to dress beautiful. She wanted to look beautiful. She was getting a little older and she also didn't have the, the natural charisma that Atsuko had. But they worked together. So Kazuko decided she would become friends with her and asked her one day if she would like to hang out outside of work. So one night after their shift, the two women went to Atsuko's apartment to hang out. While the exact events that unfolded next are not clear, what we do know is that at some point in the night, Kazuko strangled Atsuko to death. Now, I have no idea if this was premeditated, if there was some sort of altercation that ensued. And unfortunately, the only two people who really know are Kazuko and Atsuko. Well, I didn't see this coming. Okay. No, that happened pretty quickly. This is not where I thought you were going with this case. Okay. Yes, things seem to be escalating in Kazuko's life, but I don't think anyone expected this. After the murder, Kazuko took more than 300 items from the residence, and this would include clothes, furniture, jewelry, and even Atsuko's bank book that showed her account had over 9 million yen. Now, 9 million yen, while it sounds like a lot of money, once you look at the conversion rate, that's about $65,000 in today's money. So not a small amount, but it's not as much as 9 million in U.S. dollars is. That's pretty brazen taking that furniture out. Do you know, like, did she put it in her house? Was she selling it? Do you know what she was doing with the furniture? Yes, I know exactly why she took the furniture.
So, of course, people would speculate, as you just did, like, is this just simple greed? Like, why take the furniture? But the reason why Kazuko stole everything was because she wanted to cover her tracks and wanted to make it appear as though Atsuko had committed something called johatsu, which is essentially a Japanese term for running away from one's life. And this was something that it's not that it was common, but it was a known phenomenon in which people would literally leave their home overnight and just start over someplace new. And people would often leave due to domestic violence, depression, addiction, infidelity, etc. This became a known phenomenon, people theorized, because Japan has a very harsh work culture. And once you combine that with the lack of community support for certain individuals, that's why it seems to be, it was prevalent at one time. I was told, though, that in modern times, it's considered taboo to talk about. I mean, Amy, I know that Japan is a very honor-based society. Is that where this kind of stemmed from as well? Yeah, it seems like maybe instead of asking for help or admitting that you need support, maybe for some people, they decide to just leave and start over. So it's, okay. again, there's a lot of interesting parts about Japan's culture. And I can do 50 episodes just on this case alone, all the little side things that I learned. Wow. Okay. So we don't know if this was financially motivated yet. I'm, I'm going to hold off on that. But wh what did she do with all this stuff physically? Where did she put this stuff? Well, she would hide most of the items at her lover's home and the goods and the cash, they would be enough to pay her debts and she would have enough left over to support her lavish habits. So you were asking, was this financially motivated? Whether or not it was financially motivated, she definitely could use the money. So after she got rid of all the valuables at her boyfriend's house, she then solicited the help of her husband to help dispose of the woman's body. Oh, my gosh. Her husband and her boyfriend are both in on this. Yes. Her boyfriend's holding on to all the items. I'm not sure if she told her boyfriend about the murder, but she certainly told her husband and he urged her to call authorities and to turn herself in. But Kazuko refused. Somehow she talked her husband into helping her dispose of the body. Oh, my goodness. The two of them would take Atsuko's body to the mountain areas and dispose her remains in a remote location. Wow. As the police began investigating Atsuko's disappearance, it would not take them long to learn that one of the last times that she was seen was at work and that she was seen with a coworker. And some of the employees would even tell the police about Kazuko's jealousy towards Atsuko. So I guess Kazuko was telling other employees about her feelings towards this new woman. Okay. So the police would call Kazuko in for questioning and she voluntarily went to speak with them. However, she would make an excuse to leave shortly after the meeting started and she promised she would return. Do you want to guess what she does instead? Please. Yeah. So instead, she grabbed over 600,000 yen in cash, which would be over $4,000 in today's money. And she went on the run. She slipped right out of the police's grasp. And this is how she became the woman of seven faces? You are not there yet, Megan, but we're getting closer. Okay. Now, this woman left her husband to take the fall for Atsuko's murder. He was arrested and charged with the disposal of a body. Recall, she has four children, and now her husband is taking the fall for the part that the police, you know, the police don't have enough evidence to charge him with anything else. But so her four kids were left without their parents. Yes, they were left without the parents, but I could not find information on if they, you know, were handed over to the state or if other family took them. And also, right. I don't know how long if or how long the husband served in a correctional facility. Okay. Now, nobody knew where Kazuko was. The police didn't know. Of course, her family didn't know. 
But later, detectives would come to learn that she initially planned to travel to a sacred area and die by suicide. However, she had boarded the wrong train and therefore ended up in a town called Kanazawa. Now, this was about eight hours north of where she came from. And just to put it into perspective, she was about halfway between Tokyo and Osaka. And these are two very large cities. Mm -hmm. And Megan, that's one of the reasons why it took me so long to write this, because this woman was in so many different places. I was Googling everywhere and I was like, oh, I was there. I was there. I was there. So it was kind of cool for me to like understand geographically where this woman went. Very nice. So, of course, she realized her mistake and she decided she would just set up a new life for herself instead of dying by suicide. So Hold she on, Amy, decided- I'm sorry, really quick. Yeah. Is this like is substantiated the dying by suicide? Because she does not strike me as a woman who would die by suicide. I feel like a woman who leaves her children, steals this money. She's fleeing to save herself. Not it, it doesn't seem like it seems like her intentions were different. I would say her intentions were to start a new life. And I would 100% agree with you. And you would not be surprised to find out that that information came from her own admission. Ah, yes. (laughs) I'm sure you could have guessed that. Yes. Yep, I could have. Thank you. So we're getting more of a picture of who this woman was, which will all add to our discussion on trying to understand this complex woman. Okay. So as she sets up a new life for herself in this new city, she found another hostess job. Now, this actually wasn't easy for her, though, because she was now in her mid-30s. And as I mentioned, most women in these jobs were much younger. And she started to feel self-conscious and she was worried that she wouldn't be able to hold on to this job. Now, this would be the decision that led to this infamous name, the Woman of Seven Faces, because she decided she would head to Tokyo to get plastic surgery. Mm -hmm. Now, this would serve two purposes, Megan, because number one, she wanted to look younger so that she could be better in her job as a hostess. And she also, of course... Was hiding from authorities. She's disguising herself. Exactly. Because, Megan, there were photos of her everywhere. Mm -hmm. The police were embarrassed. They have a very high conviction rate. They have a very strong criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to find this woman. Also, because she was a danger to society. She had murdered someone. Right. So she did have a number of cosmetic surgeries while on the run. In 1985, this is about three years after the murder, Kazuko met a man and she moved in with him. And he had no idea who she really was. But if you look at different pictures of her, you can see the variations, but I think she still looks like herself. What do you think? What I'm wondering also is if she kept getting these variations because it wasn't working, she was still looking somewhat, you know, like herself. And secondly, I'm wondering where she was getting the money for all these surgeries. Well, recall, she was a hostess at this point and they did make good money. And, you know, she had a boyfriend, so her boyfriend could have been supporting her. In fact, she also started working in her boyfriend's popular candy shop and everyone there adored her. She was getting really comfortable. All of the local people, she was like a member of the community now. And she got so comfortable that she invited one of her sons to come and work at the candy store. Of course, she would tell her boyfriend that this was not her son and that it was her nephew. But my point is that, you know, she was getting extremely comfortable. So, Amy, she had fled and left her family and now she's in touch with one of her sons. I mean, was she in contact with the family? Had she remained in contact? Was this a new development? Yes. We would come to find out that she would call her family often from payphones. She was very calculated about where she would call from and what she would say because she was not stupid. She was a smart woman. She knew that the phone lines were probably tapped. Okay. One of her sons did come to work with her. And at one point, her boyfriend proposed, but she didn't accept because, Megan, she didn't have a real identity and she was was still legally married. Right. (laughs) She was still legally married to someone else. 
one of her boyfriend's family members would become suspicious of her because they saw a picture of a fugitive woman and they said, hmm, that looks like so-and-so's new girlfriend. Because again, these wanted posters were all over the place and she wasn't that far from home. She was a couple of hours away from where she had left from. So this family member contacted the police and they immediately headed to the area that she was in. Oh boy. But somehow, Kazuko being Kazuko, she got word of this and she fled the area just in time to evade police yet again. Wow. This next part might sound like fiction, but it's true. Once she heard that the police were on their way, she stole a bicycle and rode 146 miles south to another city called Nagoya. Well, I can tell you that it's possible. I didn't realize people could ride for that far, but a friend of the family was doing a, a bike race, you know, something distance travel and was doing something like over 100 miles. And I was just shocked. But I wonder in what time frame, you know, she did that. I believe she could do it, but I don't know. But I heard she was also wearing her kimono. The traditional dress that women wear in Japan. Oh. You know, it's not like she was wearing like Lululemon leggings and a sports bra. Yeah, I guess I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah. You know, as we would later hear, you know, she was afraid of getting caught. So she would just keep going until she felt that she was far enough away that nobody would suspect her or notice her. Now, she would stop in this new city and get a job at what is known as a love hotel. Now, a love hotel is a short stay hotel operated primarily for the purpose of allowing guests privacy for sexual activities. And the name originates from an original hotel in Osaka that was called Hotel Love, and this was built in 1968. Now, love hotels exist all over the world, but the actual term love hotel is often used to refer specifically to those located within Japan. I don't know about you, but this makes me think of, did you ever see those um, commercials in the 80s? For the hotels in the Poconos that would have like champagne-shaped hot tubs and heart-shaped beds. Yes, Amy, and now I live here, so (laughs) it's particularly uh, salient to my life. But yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Do they still exist? I haven't seen those commercials in years, so I I really don't know. I mean, I think they're a little different. They were marketed towards people on honeymoon, so obviously I'm being a little facetious. But I remember being homesick from school in elementary school seeing those. It was kind of funny when we moved here. I was like, you know, we're moving to the place. I mean, you know, James was a West Coaster, so I don't think he realized that. Mount Airy Lodge. So in in this new job... She would clean hotel rooms. And this was a perfect place for her because she didn't, number one, she didn't need any credentials for the job. But even more importantly, she would very rarely run into guests or coworkers because anonymity was valued at these types of hotels. Although she didn't really see many people, she did see one colleague. And unfortunately for her, this colleague recognized her from a poster that was at a nearby police station. And this woman confronted her. And just like her husband had before, this coworker urged Kazuko to surrender. But instead, Kazuko decided she would leave and she was on the run yet again. How far did she go this time? Well, this time, and Megan, she has no identification. So this is not easy for her to be leaving these places. And she, yeah. this time she ended in Osaka. Now, Osaka is a city that I went to. It's actually a large port city. And do you remember the pictures of a castle that I sent you or that I showed you? Yep, I sure do. And that was the place I got my first green tea latte in Japan. So it's one of Japan's oldest castles. And there's also one of Japan's oldest Shinto shrines in Osaka. So Osaka is a really amazing city that has a really rich history. So anyway, Kazuko ends up at a brothel in Osaka. 
But she would move around again. She would end up traveling through several other cities. And at many times she was homeless. She would live on the street or live in a cardboard box because she could not find a job because she didn't have identification. So anytime she tried to get a job, if they would ask her for fingerprints or for identification, she would just quietly get up and flee to the next city. How long was she on the run for? Oh, you said in the beginning, wasn't it like 15 years? Uh-huh. That's oh my become, goodness. Okay. That's Sorry. going to become a very important part to the story. And we'll find out in just a moment why. Okay. She eventually would settle in Fukia, which is a city just an hour south of where she was initially. So she's kind of going to a few different areas in Japan. So she's about an hour south of where she initially started. Now here she would get a job at a noodle shop and she adjusted very well to her new life. In fact, she was having a great time. She would go out a lot. She was very social. She spent a lot of time drinking and going to karaoke bars. But all of her fun would soon come to an end when on July 24th, 1997, a customer at the noodle shop informed police that one of the servers there looked very much like the woman in the wanted posters that were still circulating. And Megan, this was almost 15 years since the murder. Good eye. Right? Yeah. So I I guess we can say at this point, these surgeries, whether there were seven or three or four, who knows? I don't know that they were doing the trick because she seems to be getting recognized at every stop along her way. Yeah, I don't think her surgery was that drastic. So this was almost 15 years. And the reason why this is so important and the reason why I was so into this case is because Japan's statute of limitations for murder was 15 years at the time. So oh, she was getting close to being able to run out the clock. And I'm pretty sure she knew this. And I think this is probably why she kept in touch with her family, because she probably told them, mommy will be home soon. What? How close was she? Megan, she was within just days. Just to give a little more information on exactly what the statute of limitations means. The police only have 15 years to gather evidence, arrest and prosecute because he has to be prosecuted too. So Kazuka would have been a free woman even if she admitted to the murder. So the police knew that they were getting close. So they quickly went to the restaurant to speak with this woman who was possibly Kazuko. And Kazuko sat down with them and she spoke to them and they asked her if they could take her fingerprints and she said no. But the police are smart and they got the- Yeah, they can get her fingerprints. Yeah. They simply took the beer bottle she was drinking from And they got her fingerprints. And sure enough, they were an exact match to the fingerprints that they have been looking for for the last almost 15 years. But did she flee again before they could come get her? No, Kazuka was arrested and taken to the station for further questioning. So they kept their eye on her. They had like a Mm. fingerprint expert on standby and they moved these things quick. I see. So what do you think is going to happen during interrogation? Is she going to own up to this or what? No. No, of course not. She said, nope, she didn't murder Atsuko. She said, you know, she was there, but they were also with a man that night. And she said it was the man who killed Atsuko. Right. And she claimed she was just an accomplice because, Megan, if she was an accomplice, the statute of limitations for that was certainly up by this time. I know. I was just going to say that. (laughs) I realized that was what was happening. So, again, the police are working quick because at this point, Megan, they had six days. Wow. So the police had to look into this man that she mentioned and find out, is it possible that he had something to do with this? And if so, they'd have to investigate him in this short time span. Wow. So they looked into this man and they found that he had already passed away. The police then contacted his relatives and they're getting worried at this point because if they didn't have proof that the man Kazuka was blaming had an alibi for the day of the murder, 
this whole case could come crumbling down. Right. Because then the prosecutors would have a really tough time convicting Kasuko in court. So they needed to find this man. And they were in luck, Megan, because although the man had passed away, he had kept a daily diary for most of his life. And they were able to confirm based on the dated entry that the night of the murder, he was away on a business trip in Tokyo. Lucky break. And Megan, this is why I keep a journal. And you know, I've had a journal since I was nine years old. So if anything ever happens, you make sure they go look in that bin that's in the crawl space in my basement. Okay, but now you just announced to me where it is, you know, next time I come over. No, I'll oh, <laughs> read about all, <laughs> all my deep, dark secrets from when I was yeah. a nine-year-old. So this wasn't good for Kazuko. Her story was falling apart mm-hmm. and the detectives were gathering plenty of evidence to arrest her. And that's exactly what they did. They arrested Kazuko and she stood trial in 1999. And 15 years after the murder, the woman of seven faces was finally convicted within hours of the clock. Wow. I keep saying wow, but it is wow. It's like, this is a movie, you know? I'm wondering if that was just being sensationalized. Like six days is still pretty sensational. But for the media to say within hours, that makes the story even that much more exciting. Sure. So she was sentenced to life in prison. They did not have proof that the murder was premeditated, but they were able to say that the robbery was premeditated. What's the difference there if she was found not guilty of premeditated? Being acquitted on that, does that mean she avoids the death penalty? Because she got life in prison. So I'm just wondering what the difference is here. That's a great question. So the death penalty in Japan is usually not handed down when there's a single murder victim. In fact, they use a nine-point criteria to decide whether a case is death eligible. It's a little bit of a tougher criteria than we see in the United States. However, their rate of executions is pretty similar to ours, though, which I thought was interesting. Do you know what the criteria are, like these nine points? They're similar to our aggravated factors as far as like, you know, was there torture involved? How many victims? Was it a child? Mm -hmm. I see. The defense team appealed and they asked for leniency and get this. They said that Kazuko was actually a lesbian and she was attracted to Asutko and killed her out of passion. Now, the reason they did this is because if she was able to get a reduced sentence of a crime of passion, or I don't know if they call it, I don't know if it's second degree there or just crime of passion, but again, the statute of limitations would have been expired if there was reduced charges. So they were trying really hard, but the judge threw out that argument saying, quote, the defendant's statement is unnatural and cannot be believed without substantiating evidence. Yeah. Now, I believe that she's lying about this. She's just trying anything to get reduced culpability. Yes. But I'm not sure that I would say her statement is unnatural. But Well, clearly, no, we would not say something like that. But I, the second part is true. It's not credible yeah. given that there's no other substantiating evidence. I agree. So the ruling was upheld by a high court in 2000, and then the Supreme Court rejected a subsequent appeal in 2003. So Kazuko was housed at Wakayama Prison in Wakayama City, and she would live there until the age of 57. What happened at 57? Is she transferred? Does she get out? Does she pass away? Yes. Well, Megan, it would be the latter. In February of 2005, she would collapse while working at a factory, and she was sent to a hospital with bleeding on her brain. And she would never regain consciousness. And about a month later, she would die on March 10th. Oh, wow. That's a terrible way to end. She also would only end up serving about five years in prison for her murder. Although some people would say justice was not served for this murder because she only served five years, her case brought about a huge change. 
In 2010, the government of Japan revised the criminal procedure law and abolished the statute of limitations on murder. Excellent. Right. And now it wasn't, of course, it wasn't just that one case. There were a few other cases that also led to this change. But this was a really important revision because it also increased the statute of limitations from 15 years to 30 years for other violent crimes, such as rape, robbery, and kidnapping. Mm -hmm. And it also extended the statute of limitations on less serious crimes as well. So, Megan, this is the part where I want to talk a little bit about this because this is really what drew me into the case. I was shocked to see that Japan had a 15-year statute of limitations on murder. In the United States, there's no statute of limitations on murder, and many would say that serves as a deterrent. A lot of commentators who have looked at the law in Japan or looked at the statute of limitations say that a lot of people do exactly what Kazuko did, knowing that they just had to make it for 15 years and then they would be free. Yeah, I mean, if that's well-publicized information, then that's very helpful to people who commit those crimes. Yeah, it was an incentive. And many say that this was a well-known rule. Although I must say the murder rate is quite low in Japan right? as compared to the United States. For example, in 1989, your chances of getting murdered in Japan were just one out of 100,000. And Megan, if you were the victim of a homicide, chances are the police would capture your killer because 96% of all murders were eventually solved. Now, in contrast, in 1989 in the U.S., your chances of being murdered were about 9 out of 100,000. So just to show you the difference, Megan, according to some recent statistics from the FBI, only about 51% of homicides were solved in a given year. And of course, it depends on what source you look at. But even if those numbers are a bit off, you still see a big disparity between the number of murder cases that go solved or unsolved. Now, talking about conviction rate, I mentioned that there's a 99% conviction rate. And the reason for that high number in Japan is because they only move forward when there is very little doubt. In other words, the arrest itself in Japan creates the presumption of guilt And then it's verified by additional evidence. Ah, I see. That makes sense. Okay. Like you said, they're only moving forward on cases they have strong evidence, it seems, for. Exactly. And, you know, we I think our rates are closer to probably 85, but our systems just work pretty different. Like, for example, they don't have jury trials. They don't have Miranda rights, but they do have two rights that are given to people under arrest. And it's the right to remain silent and the right to an attorney. So they have some similarities, but their system in general, it's just different. I mean, they have a very efficient legal system. I would say part of that is due to, we mentioned earlier, just the cultural differences. There's just this moral duty among people who live in Japan to protect each other, kind of keep to yourself, honor, safety, order. These are all values that are held by people in that culture. I I would also think that there are a couple other characteristics that account for this. Uh, Japan is more of a collectivistic society, whereas in the U.S. we're more individualistic. But also there are differences in our firearms capacities and and the laws. Can you tell us a little bit about firearms? Well, I can tell you firearms are heavily regulated in Japan. Mm-hmm. And I know the police do, some police do carry, but they don't often use their firearm. You don't hear stories of them having to use their firearm because people in the public don't have a firearm. Mm-hmm. And the police, it's just also different because their police are under the oversight of the National Police Agency. Although we see it happening more here in the United States, that mm-hmm. a lot of their police operate under community policing models. Mm-hmm. They also have an emphasis on restorative justice. 
So there, you know, there's just differences. And I'm sure that along with a million other variables contribute to the difference in crime rates between our country and their country. Oh, yes. So first, did the system get it right? I think we can both agree. No, at first they didn't. And then they did. Would you say that's so? I think they got it right. I think they had the right person and they were pursuing the right person and they were trying to. But look, it seemed like she was pretty also skilled at starting a new life, finding new people, new jobs for some time and changing her appearance. So, yeah, I mean, it's it would have been nice for her to serve a much fuller sentence than that and get apprehended earlier. But I don't know that it was for lack of trying. It seemed like they they really had the right person and they wanted to pursue justice. And would you agree that them revising the criminal procedure law to now reflect no statute of limitations on murder. That's the right move, correct? I see. That might have been what you were talking about more. Did the system get it right? I don't think there should be a statute of limitations on murder. So yes, I think it was absolutely the right move. And so that was probably part of the problem. You're right. So Amy, I don't know if students ask you this, but when we talk about a statute of limitations, why does it exist? Like, Why even have a time on it? There are a couple of purposes of the statute of limitations. One is to basically make sure that if you're going to file a lawsuit against another person, it's done in a timely manner. And this goes along with the second purpose, which is the statute of limitations is trying to protect against unreliable evidence or evidence that might be lost, witnesses that cannot be found, possible memories that are unreliable. So all of the things, all the factors that might negatively, let's say, impact the outcome of a case as so much time passes. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Now, what theories do you see here? You know, we talked about how Kazuko had clearly a tough beginning, right? Her father left. Her mother was running a brothel. We don't know if she was abused, but if your mother's running a brothel and you're a child, you know, that's clearly abuse. And who knows what was going on in that house, what she saw, what she experienced. And then, of course, there was a sexual assault in prison after the first crime of attempted robbery. What theories do you think lend themselves? Well, how can we understand this woman? Well, I think her actions were mostly based in, you know, the first one was a theft. So it was monetary. And the second one, I do think that was part of the reason that she killed her victim was for monetary gain. So what I see is someone who grew up in limited opportunity and with very blocked opportunities who then is coming out and needs to find a criminal route to her success, which she seemed to need. She seemed to have, in the U.S., we call it the American dream theory. But what it really is, is kind of insatiable need for more and this kind of greed. And I think that Mm -hmm. is more of strain theory in terms of wanting to unblock those opportunities and getting to success getting money, getting a lifestyle, no matter what the cost. That was the same theory I was thinking. And I think it's clearly rational choice also. Absolutely. Yeah. No, she was she had she definitely was a planner Mm -hmm. in many regards and not just regards to committing her crimes, but then covering them up. You know, this is step by step, choice by choice. She had to, you know, make these choices at every turn. And she clearly knew what the punishment would be. And she clearly didn't care. And she decided it was still worth it for her to commit these crimes. Right. But then even staying on the run and making these next choices of where to go was to avoid the statute Mm -hmm. of limitations. So, you know, it's calculated. Megan, I have to tell you, this was one of my favorite episodes to date. It was so fun to research and write. I love diving into a culture that is just so different than ours. So I'm telling you, this is going to be the first of many. I definitely plan on doing more cases like this where we jump into different criminal justice systems and different cultures. 
So as usual, to our listeners, if you have a case suggestion, you can go to our website at womenincrimepodcast.com and fill out the form to suggest a case. We would love to hear, especially if it's a country that we have yet to cover on the podcast. Yes, I agree. And thank you, Amy, for bringing us this case from Japan today. Our first. I learned a lot as well. Very, very interesting. Really appreciate it. Great. Well, thank you all so much for listening. And we will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga, edited by Jose Alfonso. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include Medium.com, Tokyo Reporter, Crime Reads, The Japan Times, The Tokyo Weekender, FBI.gov, The National Police Agency, The Perspectives Magazine, The Globe and Mail, and The Library of Congress. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.